All right, so here we are, Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213. Today's topic in our textbook, Chapter 8, right? And the topic is personality disorders. So we're going to talk about the category of personality disorders. Um, this actually was a category that was going to be, they had a huge discussion about realigning the disorders in this chapter. So they were going to kind of combine them, we were going to look at them. But with all the other changes that happened in the DSM-5, they decided not to do it at this point. I have a feeling in the future you'll see some of these change a little bit. Uh, but right now, these are still the same disorders that have actually have existed for a while in the DSM system. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. Again, this will be the first of two recordings because there's no way we'll make it through all this material in one session. Uh, but at least we'll get started with it. So, here we go. Earlier in the DSM um, version, or the DSM uh, versions, I guess that's the best word to say, right, in the DSM series, earlier in the DSM series, remember we talked that there were different axes. Came out in the DSM-3 and was kind of held through DSM-4 and then we got rid of it. So the five axis system on axis one or are clinical disorders, treat, I call them like this, treatable conditions, conditions that are the center of therapy or focus of therapy that, again, can be treated. I'm not saying necessarily cured. So schizophrenia would fall on axis one, depression would fall on axis one, dissociative disorders that we just talked about, DID would fall on axis one, all, again, things that can be treated. Axis two, were two specific sets of disorders, personality disorders and mental retardation. And the reason why those two were on axis two is because they were felt to be more chronic, more long-term, and more impactful in all different areas of functioning. Does that make sense? So more global issues that can't be treated, or, but have to be dealt with. You know, if you have um, mental retardation, can I fix that? No, I can't fix that, right? If you have, now remember today's term is intellectual disability, so I'm using mental retardation because that's what we used back then. If you have, um, if you're a narcissist or narcissistic personality disorder and you believe that you are like God's gift to everything, can that be fixed or does it just have to be dealt with? Just dealt with, right? Think about... I always use this example, and even though he's president, I can still get away with it, I think. Think about Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump a narcissist? Does he believe he is God's gift to business? He, when he was a businessman, right? That he was the best businessman on the face of the planet. You need to invest with him. He is the top of the heap, right? Except, you know, that he's had bankruptcies and all different kinds, his, his, his business practices have not always been awesome, they've been under scrutiny, but he denies all that, that's just a competition being threatened by his presence, right? So again, that's a mentality that's really not gonna go away, but it has to be dealt with, make sense? So Axis two were those items. So believe it or not, in DSM-3 and DSM-4, personality disorders fell on Axis two. Our guy from the mall parking lot that we talked about earlier in the semester, the one that ran over the elderly lady stealing the car, and his biggest issue was, why didn't she get out of the way? Is he ever going to understand? Probably not. Can we get him to comply with the law? Maybe eventually. 
But is he ever going to buy it? Or is he just going to go through the, well, I got to do this so I don't end up back in jail. Probably it's going to be that kind of attitude, right? So it's going to be something that permeates his whole life. Now, remember, here's the reason why it was in Axis 2, because there was recognition that personality disorders presented stable, consistent, and potentially lifelong problems that affected a person's global functioning. All right? Now, keep in mind that in DSM-5, we abandoned those two different axes. What we did was we said, we're just going to throw them all together on one you know, group. So whether you have mental retardation, well, intellectual disability, or a personality disorder, or a depressive disorder, or, a, you know, or an anxiety disorder, they're all still the focus of treatment. So that's why they've been kind of encompassed, right? But it's still, these disorders are still a challenge for both diagnosis and treatment. It's one of the things to keep in mind because they're variations on normal. Is it okay to feel good about yourself? Yeah. Right? Me as a teacher, I might think I'm a pretty awesome teacher. Now, I'm not going to say I'm the most awesomest teacher, but I, I should feel pretty good about myself. Right? So is narcissism just me feeling good about myself on you know, steroids, just a little higher? So again, some of that can be normal. When, when your boss says to you, uh, I'd like to see you at the end of your shift. I need to talk to you in my office. Do you then worry about that for like the rest of your shift, going wonder why he wants to talk to me? Is that a little bit of paranoia? Well, there's paranoid personality disorder where people believe that everybody is holding something back. That if people were whispering in the hallway, they're whispering about you, not in a delusional sense, but you know, people are whispering and they look at you, you look at them and they kind of give you a weird look and you go, hmm, I'm not talking about me, right? So again, could you sus be suspicious, overly suspicious? So is that just normal, but gone awry? So that's why we again say these present some particular challenges. The concept of personality, what do we think about? When we talk about personality, this concept, what are we thinking? Well, personality is not a thing, but rather a way of kind of acting and thinking. Think of it that way. It's my interaction with the world and my, how I view myself, I guess, in some ways. Individuals develop a broad, uh, characteristic way of viewing and organizing their world, of interacting with others and coping with challenges. It's how I deal with the world, right? Or how I perceive the world. And that impacts all areas of my life. These approaches to the world tend to become more predictable and stable as people grow from childhood through adolescence to adult. Personality disorders in general are not diagnosed until the person is at least 18. And why? Because our belief is that prior to 18, you're still deciding who you are. You're still creating your identity. You're still forming your personality of who you're going to be. So as we get older, it becomes more and more stable. Does that kind of make sense? Think about people you know that, I don't know if this is a great example, but it just popped into my head. Um, think about people that you know when, when you were younger that might be a little, uh, I don't know, prejudice. They don't tend to get less prejudice with time, right? They might get more locked into prejudice with time, more and more particular. Now, unless there's some reason to change that, usually after 18, they're not going to change all that much. So it's prior to 18 when you still have that 
flexibility, if you will, in, in personality. There are multiple ways to examine personality. Phrenologists, you see that first one there? That was the belief that the bumps on the top of your head were somehow related to your personality. Early psychology, that's what we thought. I have up in my, my office this kind of ceramic skull with different areas of the brain mapped out. So again, this area is associated with, I, I don't know, you know, uh, conscientiousness, like how conscientious you, how able you are to stay on kind of time. So if you have a bump in that area of your skull, the belief was that you had a lot of tissue that was related to you staying on time. So maybe you become almost, almost obsessed with time. Like everything, you've gotta be on the dot. You must always be on, like it's never, you can't ever deviate, right? Or maybe you have an indentation in that area. And so your conscientiousness with respect to time is, eh, sometimes you're late, you know, it might be five or 10 minutes, you know, but you show up eventually. You're always gonna be there, but, you know, it's kind of like you're the person they invite to dinner and we're going to eat at 1130. And really they're eating at 12 o'clock, but they know you're probably going to run about 15 minutes late anyway. Right? So again, we feel the bumps on your head and see where you have bulges and where you have dents. And that was in the indication of personality. We know that's, that's not, it's not true. But we thought that. Right? Trait theories. Trait theories are the belief that, you know, we have set traits that we can identify traits in people. We don't really talk about where they came from, it's just what they are. You know, those traits that make a good professor are different than those traits that make a good, I, I don't know, uh, uh, nurse. You know, maybe they're not the same traits. A good pilot and a good writer may have different skill sets that they hone in on that makes them good in those professions. So again, trait theories. Hans Eisnick, or Eisnick and Eisnick, there was, you know, basically Hans, or there was two, right? So Eisnick and Eisnick came up with what's called the three-factor model of personality, that all personalities are across dimensions, all right? So again, there's these long dimensions. You could be at one extreme or the other. And according to Eisnick, the three-factor model are uh, neuroticism, psychoticism, and extroversion. So how outgoing or how introverted you are, neuroticism, how emotionally stable you are on a continuum, being real emotionally stable to being neurotic, highly unstable emotionally, and then psychoticism, how in touch with reality are you? There's some people who don't believe in astrology at all. There's others that kind of say, oh, I believe in astrology. There's other people who, who might believe in I don't know, you know, animals can talk to them. So again, are those different, different places on a continuum? I'm not saying they are, but are they, right? So these are the different ways to look at it. And then the final way to look at it, and I don't think I talk about them in-depthly, I don't, is the big, the five-factor model. And the five-factor model is kind of expanding on Eisnick's three, um, you know, big three-factor model. And the big five-factor model, the five-factor model, says that we have five dimensions on which all of our personalities are based. Extroversion, so how outgoing I am, all right? Um, neuroticism, how emotionally stable I am. Openness to experience, how adventurous am I? 
Am I someone more conservative or am I someone more willing to do something off, off the wall or something that others would find strange? Um, a buddy of mine got together one time. We decided we were going to wander down, kind of think about back in the days of college. We bumped into each other in town, and uh, we hadn't seen each other in 25 years. I didn't know he lived here. He didn't know I lived here. So we, you know, met each other, and we kind of decided, let's go out on a Wednesday night like we used to do back in college. So we decided, sure. So we went out to town. We had a couple drinks, right, had dinner together, right? Our wives were at home, so it was just the two of us. So we're walking down the sidewalk, and, and he said, hey, you ever been in a gay bar? And I'm like, nope. He goes, you want to go in? Sure, what the hell? Let's go in and just check it out. So we walk in a gay bar. Didn't feel, uncom- didn't feel comfortable there, just saying, because we're not gay. But, but we walked in the gay bar, and we looked around, and we're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Went in a lesbian bar. I've never been there before either, right? I've gone to see a drag show, drag queen show, because I thought that would be really interesting. You know, so I'm open to do that. I was going to bungee jump one time. One time. Actually paid the $50 and got in line. And then I thought about the logistics of bungee jumping. You know, large man, rubber band, bad idea. And I actually took my money back. But, but my, you know, another buddy of mine has jumped out of airplanes before because, A, he thought it would be cool for his birthday. 50th birthday, he decided he was going to, you know, jump out of an airplane with a parachute on, see what happens. Like, dude, you go. There's no way I'm doing that. I'm thinking, you know, parachute, big man, ain't happening. Not enough parachutes, right? Got to have like three, like, you know, when the I don't know, spacecraft comes back out of space. That's just what I need, right? But what I'm trying to get at is, again, I'm a little bit adventurous, but I'm not that far adventurous that I do almost everything, right? So I do a little bit of stuff that maybe pushes me in my comfort zone. Maybe you're more conservative. You never do anything outside of the comfort zone. So again, different dimensions. So extroversion, neuroticism, openness to experience, agreeableness. How agreeable are you? Are you easy to get along with or you're not? You're more difficult. And then conscientiousness. How conscientious are you? If you want to remember the big five, the way to do that is canoe or ocean. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, or canoe, conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness to experience, and extroversion. Again, that's the big five, the big big five dimensions. So those are our general approaches to looking at it. I'm going to tell you the big five is the way that we look at it from most personality theorists today. And we have these differing dimensions. All right? So the concept of personality, are they categories? Are they dimensions? Well, the DSM-5 is a categorical system. So it says that there are 10 primary types of personality disorders listed. A person qualifies for the disorder or not, depending upon how many diagnostic criteria are met in the judgment of the person giving the diagnosis. Sounds awesome. But the truth is, our assumption about personality is that it's more dimensional. Because remember, we believe that five-factor model. We have varying degrees. So we're using these varying degrees to then categorize people and put them into slots. So there's a lot of overlap. And that makes it incredibly difficult for diagnosis. I've seen psychiatrists battle it out. One psychiatrist believing someone had borderline personality disorder. The other psychiatrist believing the person was antisocial. 
And what I'm gonna tell you is, the treatment approach to deal with those two personality disorders are different, significantly different. With an antisocial, you're very confrontative, right? Someone who's got an antisocial personality disorder, or, you know, they tend to love to play games with authority, they don't respect authority, they don't like authority. I went and saw an inmate, right? So, excuse me, I'm gonna swear a couple times here, so I just warn you, it's coming up. You might wanna block this out if you have a young child. So, here we go, right? Um, so I walk up to this guy's cell, I was working in prison, I was the psychologist on a unit. Um, it was kind of a maximum security unit where guys couldn't even get along with other inmates in prison, so they would have fights, and now they're in seclusion. It was a special management unit for behavior problems, all right? Special management unit, here's the way it was structured. You would be placed in that program for two years. You had to earn your way out of it. You were housed in a single cell for, for 23 hours a day. You had one hour you could come out if you were behaviorally sound. In other words, if you weren't acting out. If you were acting out and you were a danger, then we didn't feel comfortable taking you out. You had one hour that you could go out in the yard, the yard was nothing more than a log, long dog run that was really kind of enclosed with cage because these guys would beat each other up. It wasn't we were trying to be mean, we were trying to protect them from each other because they would you know, push each other's buttons in their opposite cells, yell across the, the, you know, the block at each other, and then what, you're gonna put them in the same yard and let them duke it out? No, we can't, we can't do that. So that's what we did, right? And then you have to earn your way through privileges. Well, because of that kind of environment, 23 hours a day, locked down, right? You're in a single cell by yourself. You have limited um, things in that cell, religious materials, educational materials, but you don't have a lot of privileges. That can be really hard on your psyche. So me as the psychology you know, contact person would walk down and every week my job was to touch base with all of the inmates, make sure that they were doing okay. If they weren't doing okay, then of course I would see them more frequently. If they were doing fine, then I only really needed to see them once a week. So I walked past this one guy's cell, I walked up, said, how are you today, sir? And his response, again, sorry, I'll try to clean it up a little bit, was, you know, get the F off my door. Get the F off my door. And, I, and me, you know, I, I was kind of direct. I said, look, let me lay this out on the table. I don't like you and you don't like me, but my job is to come by your cell once a week and have a discussion with you to see how you're functioning. Now, if you don't give me a response, then what's gonna happen is I have to come back here and talk to you tomorrow. I would prefer not to do that if you don't have any issues. So, I'm gonna ask you again, how are you doing today? And his response was, I'm fine. Good, thank you, have a good day. If you need anything, you know how to get a hold of me, I'll be back in a week to check on you right? And I walk away. Now, if the next day I show up, I just told him I wasn't going to be back for a week. The next day I show up and I violate the agreement that he and I have, well, then it's on. Well, now it's a big game because you lied to me and I don't like you anyway. But me being very con confrontive with him, not taking that, in other words, you know, putting my foot down, with an antisocial, it's the only way that you're going to get by. Because if they see a crack that they can play with, it's, it's like a cat playing with a mouse. I'm just going to swat you around. I'm going to do whatever I can. So that's an antisocial. A borderline is a person who has had a borderline personality disorder who has had a history of abandonment. They're the kind of person that pulls you in. 
You are awesome. You are the best therapist ever. I'm so glad that you come to see me. And the minute that you do something that violates what they believe, you suck! You're the worst person ever. I can't believe I trusted you with anything. So it's this yin and yang, this pull close and throw away and pull close and throw away. That's what they do. Because inside, they are teetering. Think on the borderline. They don't respond well to confrontation. You confront them, they collapse. You almost have to be more nurturing with them, which of course an antisocial is gonna take advantage of, but a borderline needs. Does that make sense? So I've actually had their psychiatrists battle it out over a diagnosis. Are they antisocial? Are they borderline? And it makes a difference in treatment. But it's because there's some overlap that you sometimes see. So what one person's seeing, the other person isn't seeing. And so it really makes it challenging. Did you have a question? Okay, all right. So again, hopefully that, that helps you. We'll talk more about these as we make our way through. So again, DSM is based on categories, categorizing people, but it's really based on dimensions. And those five dimensions are not easy to categorize into 10 different, you know, categories, if you will. So people are either not extroverted or introverted, think of it that way, but rather they can act both ways in various degrees depending upon circumstances. I'm very introverted in some ways, I'm extroverted, and you probably would never believe that, right? Two weekends ago, I took my daughter to stay overnight at a friend's house. When I showed up at the friend's house, their house was bigger than my barn. And my barn's pretty big. Right? And my house is small. Don't think that I have this big property. I have a small you know, house from like 1889, little farmhouse. Now this big barn that's you know, filled with junk, right? And this person's house was huge. I, was, I had needed to meet the parents because I don't feel comfortable with my daughter staying over unless I meet the parents first. So they're like, oh, my parents are downstairs watching you know, this college football game, Penn State game. I'm like, oh, cool, you know, would you want to come down and meet them? I walked downstairs, they had more TVs in their basement than Best Buy. The bar on the wall was more stocked than some of the bars in town. And I'm hanging out, and I'm going to tell you, in that setting, I was incredibly quiet. I was very introverted, because I was kind of off my square. I was kind of reading the people, trying to figure out what's going on, you know, trying to found out what some of their professions were, pretty interesting professions, no wonder they're living in this huge mansion and it's in the estates and you know, um, and my daughter just thinks it's amazing and I'm like, honey, look, they, they got two Porsches and a, and a Lincoln Navigator in the driveway because they're two car garages filled with cars. Um, yeah, that's not us. But it was a nice girl, you can stay overnight, but again, in that setting, I'm very quiet. Take me back to my, my little farmette, my little barn. I'm very outgoing. Think about me in this class. So again, I choose how I act in different situations. So there are dimensions, and then we try to categorize saying this is how a person globally is going to be. Well, what we find about personality disorders is that they are stable ways of looking at the world that don't tend to be flexible. So in many ways, they're inflexible categories. Does that make sense? So just letting you know how that works. 
So in DSM-5, personality disorders are enduring inflexible patterns. They cause distress either for the person or others. Doesn't have to cause them distress. Our guy from the mall parking lot is not distressed by his behavior, but the rest of the world is because he just, you know, takes things and violates the law and doesn't care. Notice it says personality disorders involve disturbances in a combination of areas of global functioning. So it's not just, when we talk personality, it's a whole person. Think of it that way. So they have mood um, issues. They have cognition issues. They're impacted in their social interactions, in their control of their impulses. So all of these areas are impacted and they cannot be better explained by a medical condition. If there's a reason, the person um, has a high temperature and they're delirious, and we have a medical condition that can explain it, then it's not a personality disorder. This is a long-standing pattern. Again, usually diagnosed after adulthood, after you've reached 18, because it seems to be more indicative of how you're gonna interact with the world. Again, you can't use a substance. It can't be induced by a substance because that's better explained by substance you know, uh, uh, response. So it can't be because you're using cocaine so you change the way that you interact with the world. No, no, that's influenced by cocaine. It can't be caused by another mental illness like schizophrenia or something like that. Again, that would be something, if we go back with old DSM, that would be something on Axis One which would take probably more priority while personality disorders would be more an axis two, which would be more secondary. Again, if there's other reasons that are more priori, you know, more present, then we run with those diagnoses, just to let you know. Um, some individuals are not particularly bothered by their own personality disorders or their patterns. They don't care. I watched a special. It was on the History Channel. And it was a group of people, they were going to clean the Declaration of Independence. It's the famous document that our country is, you know, built on. It was handwritten uh, in 200 and what, 75, 300 years ago about, right, 1776. And it's, you know, a precious document to this country, right? So I watched a special on how they clean it. Well... It's meticulous. Like they get, they get all loaded up in, in, a, in a sterile, free, non-dust environment. You would swear they were playing with plutonium, like of how valuable this is. They can't even physically touch it because it's so fragile they don't want it to fall into pieces. And what happened was the last time they opened the case it was in, which was like, I forget, five or eight years ago or whatever, a hair fell into the case and oh my goodness it was like it was like the end of the world that would I, I, I don't have the patience for that does it make sense but someone who's obsessive compulsive personality disorder incredibly rigid almost meticulous to a fault they would probably love that an archaeologist do you think being obsessive compulsive in some of your behaviors or approaches might make you a great archaeologist I mean, you're digging a, a, a hole with a hand shovel and a toothbrush to find little specks of skull or pottery. You want a hole dug? Give me a backhoe. I can get it dug in way less time. 
right? So being obsessive compulsive, being that meticulous is beneficial in some ways. Being overly suspicious, being paranoid of what everyone says, you think that might make you a good criminal detective? Or a good investigator, that you don't just settle for what appears to be on the surface, always digging because you believe there's more underneath. Do you see? So again, some people might not seek treatment, they may not cooperate with it, they might not even accept clinical involvement, and it actually may be able to benefit them in some way in their job. But when it becomes problematic for the person or others, that's when we start to take a look at it. It's common for people in treatment to have a, a personality disorder and other mental concerns concurrently. So it is possible to have multiple concerns. Maybe you have um, you know, borderline personality disorder, but you also have a depressive disorder. I might argue that being borderline might make you depressed, right? So again, you can see the overlap that can happen. So that's one of the things that we see. Um, now, what about treating personality disorders? Well, in general, you're ready for this. Personality disorders are difficult to treat. treat. Because why? They're stable, they're chronic, they're inflexible. That's difficult to overcome. Notice it says comorbidity with other mental disorders is quite common. Up to 50% of patients with either schizotypal personality disorder or borderline personality disorder also meet the criteria for depressive disorder. And we'll talk about these in a minute. Comorbid means that it's co-occurring, that it's, they're both happening in the person at the same time. So you have multiple disorders. Does that make sense? Yeah. So maybe you have an anxiety disorder and a mood disorder. So it just means that they're Right. Okay. Um, in many cases, treatment is directed at a particular deficit or the symptoms rather than the underlying condition. Our guy from the mall parking lot, we're never going to be able to change the way he looks at the world. He doesn't think the world is fair. He doesn't care. It's all about him. But can we get him to comply? Can we treat the symptoms of his antisocial, his law-breakingness, his lack of respect for authority? Maybe we can treat the symptoms, but the underlying cause probably we'll never get to. The DSM-5 loosely categorizes these 10 personalities into three categories, what we call three clusters. Cluster A disorders tend to present symptoms that observers considered odd or eccentric. So the three personality disorders that fall under odd or eccentric are paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder. So all of these have personality disorder after them. That's cluster A. Odd or eccentric is cluster A. Cluster B disorders are associated with dramatic, emotional, and erratic symptoms. So think B, right, are these kind of clusters that are things like antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic. So these are going to be, again, more dramatic, emotional, erratic, um, going to have more, I want to say going to have a little bit more conflicts with others in this category. You know, think of it that way. And then cluster C, the final category, 
um, are disorders that present symptoms that are generally appear avoidant or fearful. So that's going to be like an underlying, you know, kind of trigger, avoidant or fearful. And the, th the three that fall in this category are avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. That is different than obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll talk about the differences as we talk about that disorder specifically. But obsessive compulsive disorder is a separate issue than obsessive compulsive personality disorder. One is OCD, the other one is OCPD, and that P is a big P. It's a very important change. So we'll talk more about that as we go through. Questions about any of this? Okay. So difficulties in treatment, well, here we go. Um, treatment focuses on specific symptoms. Um, they're ingrained patterns of looking at the world and encompass the person's entire life. So ultimately, all you're doing is getting them to be more resilient. Our guy from the mall parking lot, I'm never gonna change his attitude, but can I get him to comply and be resilient? Can I get him to develop some coping strategies so he stops breaking the law? You don't have to like the law, but can I get you to stop breaking it? So that's it. Um, and medications, if we do give medications, uh, here tends to be the medications. If it's cluster A, again, the schizotypal, the schizoid, the paranoid, then we tend to use antipsychotic drugs. There seems to be a little, ah, a little psychoticism, a little deviation from reality there. We'll talk about different degrees of it as you move through those disorders. If we look at cluster B and C, the more fearful, um, the more avoidant, the more dramatic, emotional, and erratic, then we tend to focus on SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which tend to be antidepressant medications. So again, that's what we see. Questions about that? So here's, uh, we should be getting there soon. Yep, one more. So let's talk about A. We're gonna break them into our clusters. We'll talk about the cluster A ones today. That's probably where we're gonna stop. And then we'll talk about cluster B and cluster C when we get back together. So cluster A. Cluster A personality disorders involve symptoms that are described as odd or eccentric. Normally these symptoms are not of sufficient intensity to include delusions or hallucinations. So even though we're using antipsychotic medication with them, they don't tend to be delusional. They still have their foot in reality. When we talk about schizophrenia, then you seem to lose touch with reality. Here, they're still in touch with reality, but there's some oddness. Um, it says, although individuals are under sufficient stress, we might see some brief psychotic reaction or some brief psychotic states, might be from a few minutes to a few hours. They may occur, that seems to be delusional, seems to be you know, hallucination-based, but again, it's just gonna be a few minutes, maybe a few hours, and only under stress. So that's a little different than schizophrenia. And these disorders invariably involve restriction of social connection with others. So these impact people's social interactions. 
Now, are we ready to see the three? Here we go. So the first one is paranoid personality disorder. Notice this key descriptors. Pervasive distrust and suspiciousness. This is the person that is constantly suspicious. They constantly think people are talking about them, not to the point that they're delusional. They constantly think they're being scrutinized. They think that maybe their emails are being monitored, which may be true. Depending upon the business that they're in, it may be true, right? If you're in a, a highly important government position, do you think that your emails are constantly being scrutinized? That could be. But this is a person, let me give you an example. So let's say this, right? So um, here's what they might do, right? Riley, if, um, I, I'm gonna, or Bailey, I'm gonna use you as a, an example. Does that sound fine? So let's say that, um, let's say that you leave here, right? So class ends at 11, takes you about 15 minutes to go home, right? It's about the travel time. Let's say that you have a partner and your partner's waiting at home. So you show up at 11.30 and your partner goes, so, um, did Bailey keep you late again? And you say, no, we got out on time. Oh, well, then why are you 15 minutes late? Because it, it takes 15 minutes to get from campus to here, right? And if Bailey didn't keep you late, why is it 11.30? You go, well, I don't know. I, I, you know. It took me some time to get out to the car. Oh, okay. So constantly suspicious. Constantly a little paranoid about what might be going on. And they do that with everyone. They do that with you. They do that with their boss. Their boss is looking at me. Like maybe if I, was a, if I was suffering from this condition as your professor, I have you look at me and you're looking at me with kind of an odd look, a puzzled look, and I think that right now you're thinking, what a crappy professor this guy is. I'm constantly suspicious. What are you really thinking? And they might even ask that all the time. So what are you thinking? Is that really what you're thinking? Is that really what you wanted to do? Imagine that. And that's how they are with everyone. What we see more common in males, and that's what we're gonna find in personality disorders, they tend to be more common in males. At least some of the categories. Got it? The second one, schizoid personality disorder, pervasive social detachment, emotional restriction. Slightly more common in males. This is the person who seems to be detached from social interactions all the time. If they were the last person on the face of the planet, they would be okay with that. This is the person in your family, the sibling, that you call up and go, hey, we're coming into the holiday months, you know, here in the United States, Thanksgiving's coming up. Are you gonna come by for Thanksgiving dinner by, you know, mom and dad's house to have Thanksgiving dinner with the rest of us? And, and maybe the person goes, eh, I, I don't know, I, I probably not. Well, you know, mom hasn't seen you in like three years. She'd really like to see you. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. You know, mom knows that. But they really don't have any desire for interaction. Does that make sense? If they, if they worked in a, in a, they worked in a museum and never came in contact with people all day long and then lived on their own, usually they do live on their own. Again, they're not, they don't seem to be depressed. They just seem to be, live on their own, right? 
They're just, they're just there. I go to work every day. I categorize the items in the museum. I never talk to anyone. I come home. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. They're not distressed by it, but everyone else around them is. The ultimate loner. So that's schizoid. And here's what we know. Paranoid personality disorder doesn't seem to have a connection with schizophrenia. I mean, we can't really find a connection. Now, there is a type of schizophrenia we used to talk about called paranoid schizophrenia, where paranoia takes on a delusional uh, aspect, a detachment from reality. Remember in DSM-5, what we did is with the schizophrenic disorders, we categorized them all together. We removed those differences. But paranoid personality disorder is not paranoid schizophrenia because the person still has touch with reality. They still understand everything that's going on. They're just paranoid and suspicious about everything. The second one, schizoid, has a little bit. There's some possible connection with schizophrenia. Not in all studies does it show itself, but there's maybe some connection. Again, one of the things that we know with schizophrenia is that schizophrenia includes social isolation. People detach from social interaction because others don't feel or see what they see or feel. And so schizoid seems to have that tendency, but again, they're, they're still in touch with reality. They understand everything. They're just odd. And then the final category, let me talk about this. Did you have a question or a comment? Did you want to? Oh, I just, like, if you're working in, like, that field and stuff, I, like, definitely know When you work with schizophrenics you're talking about? Yeah, and we see that. And this schizoid, again, has that little flair, but they're still in touch with reality. So yeah. that's the unique difference, right? The final one is schizotypal personality disorder. And there does seem to be some suggestion that this, that this condition may be a precursor or a marker for what may develop into schizophrenia later. Not all schizotypal people end up with schizophrenia, but it has enough of the oddness that there, we're, we're seem to think that, that there's a link, we just haven't fully mapped it out yet. So schizotypal personality disorder, listen to the description. Pervasive social and interpersonal deficits. Cognitive or perceptual distortions and eccentric behavior. Slightly more common in males. So here's the difference. Paranoid personality disorder, I'm suspicious in my social interactions. Constantly asking, where have you been? You know, why are you late? Things like that. Schizoid, detached from social interactions. I don't really care if people talk to me or not this day. If I'm the last person on the face of the planet, I'm cool with that. Schizotypal, they want social interactions, but they're so odd that people kind of go, ooh, and I kind of walk away. So maybe you and I are going to be dating partners, and I, you know, we go out to dinner, and I go, you know what? I, I had a vision that we were going to have a really good date, so I'm feeling really good about this date, you know? And I do talk to my dad. My dad's dead, but I do talk to him. Like, we do communicate. And um, my dad and I, um, you know, dad kind of likes you. He thought that it was a good idea that we go out. So I'm so glad that we're going out because it's, it's going to be really fun. So I really want to, to interact with you, but I'm so odd that you kind of go, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, um, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I might believe that I talk to the dead. I might, uh, you know, believe that I can, I can read your mind. I, I know you're looking at me right now, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, what? This is like an odd disorder. And you're right, it's an odd disorder. And I know you're thinking, wow, 
wow, this is, this is really cool. I think the same thing. Like, we have this bond. And you go, okay. But this is how they interact with the whole world. They desire an interaction, but they're so odd that, that again, their social interactions are impacted. We'll talk more when we get back together, but I wanted to kind of set the tone of this kind of cluster before we took a break. Does that sound good? So we'll talk more about those. I'll give you better examples when we get back together. All right? All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more next class.